Let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time now to look into your word. We pray that you'd bless it, that you'd use it, that you'd help us to see that you are he, you are the one who does all these things. And truly before you we are nothing. And it is our, uh, it is our response just to trust you, to rely on you, and to obey you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I don't have the lapel mic. I just have the, uh, the pulpit mic. I guess everybody can hear fine, all right? If you can't, yell at me. <laughs> um, before I begin, I would like to say uh, tonight, I'd encourage you to come out, not because I have slides, but um, I think you'll find it encouraging of what, what God is doing um, in Africa through the Bronx and the ministry that he has for them there. We're going to be looking at some various aspects of that ministry. You'll see a number of people that are involved in the ministry, and uh, I'll try to give you a good idea of exactly how, how it, uh, it operates there and what, uh, how, you know, what you can pray for and things like that. So I would encourage you to come out in, uh, this evening. This morning we want to look a little bit about trust and obedience. We, read, we sang the song, Trust and Obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. I think if we wanted to do a succinct summary of a Christian's life, tr truly the life of any believer from in the Old Testament or New Testament, would have to say that uh, that's probably the simplest summary that we could have. Trust rely on, believe in, have faith in, and obey, be obedient to what God says. It's a pretty simple principle, uh, but uh, I think uh, when it comes down to it, it's pretty difficult to put in practice, if we think about it. Um, when I was away, I was um, had the opportunity to listen to a, uh, a book on, on, uh, on audio by Jerry Bridges, Trusting God, even when life hurts. Um, and it brought some principles to my attention. Again, I think we all, what we're gonna talk about, everybody in here knows, knows them, but um, sometimes it's good to review and to, to put things into perspective. And uh, in reading that book, he, he brought up some points that form the basis of what I wanna say this morning uh, so that when uh, life gets difficult, you know, we're sitting here this morning, we talk about trust and obedience. Pretty easy when we're all comfortable, air conditioned and everything else to, to trust God and obey him. Um, but when the times get difficult, sometimes it's seemingly impossible uh, to trust God. We find ourselves very, very weak. In Job it says, but man is born to trouble as the sparks fly outward. upward. That's Job 5.7. We've heard that verse before. Basically, life is, life can be and life is very difficult at times. For some of us, it's difficult a lot of the time. And it's very difficult when you go through that if you're under extreme pressure to continue trusting in God. <clears throat> the second verse of this song struck me. It says, not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly 
drives it away. I, I wish that were true. <laughs> um, I know what she's trying to say there. She said, if we look into the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll help us. But um, when we trust him, sometimes the troubles don't go away. And the longer it persists, the more difficulty we have trusting God, if we, if we really think about it. Um, personally, in my life, uh, I've been spared many, many major problems, that is, so far. I've had my brother has died, I've, my mother, you know, what you would consider natural things that, that happen to all of us in, in life. Uh, but um, some of you uh, may be faced or have family members who are facing disease, afflictions which, which have no cure. You're going to live all your life with these afflictions. Some lose parents. Some lose children at a very early age. I mean, it's one thing to bury your mother and father, as I did, but to bury your child is a different story. We have loved ones who rebel, perhaps children rebel, abusive spouses. If you read Our Daily Bread, uh, you'll, you'll probably recollect that one of the writers there lost their daughter who was a teenager in a tragic auto accident. Uh, great promise, uh, the, the, the girl loved the Lord and yet her life was taken tragically as a teenager and uh, they struggled with that. Um, if any of you have faced that, uh, you, you know, uh, it's a struggle. Not only the large trials of life, but we go through smaller Trials of a smaller scale, you know, canceled vacation. I know Kurt had his vacation canceled. His brother lost his job. You know, our appliances break. We're not thankful we have an appliance, but we complain when they break, right? Uh, we have car problems. The car breaks down. We have a doctor's appointment. When does the car break down? Well, it breaks down when we have to go to the doctor's appointment, right? These things come up. Um, some pain that we, we suffer is sudden and traumatic but short-lived, other, other pain, and I'm not talking only about physical pain, pain, but emotional and even spiritual pain is, is chronic and persistent and can even be lifelong. And when you're faced with, with that kind of thing, and believers are not immune, when we face those kinds of things, it tries our faith. There is no question about it. These things tempt us I wonder, can I really trust God in these situations? And I think there are two aspects of this that he brought out in his book. One, in the, in the, in the, in the concept of trusting God, the first thing that we have to really accept in our lives is, is God dependable? Is he trustworthy? You can't trust something that's not dependable. If, uh, if I uh, have a car, it's always breaking down and I have to go somewhere, do I trust that car? Well, if it's not dependable, I, don't, I can't trust it. People give up their cars because they can't trust them anymore. That's just a, a small example, but if we think about God, uh, we wouldn't admit it sometimes. We, we might think in our minds, is he really trustworthy? Is he dependable? 
And, and the second part of that then is, can I trust him? It's not just whether he's trustworthy or dependable, it's whether I personally, that's where my personal faith is, can I trust him? And everyone struggles with that. And many of you are going through adversity that's much worse than I'm going through. I, I'll guarantee you that right now. I'm not, I'm not an expert on this by any means. Uh, but being an expert uh, doesn't really help us, right? It's the scriptures that, that are going to really help us ultimately, that are going, is going to develop our faith, our trust in our God. Certainly those of you that are going through these things can be an encouragement and a help to others because you've been through it. But ultimately, we can't cause another person to trust God. It has to be God at work in us that would do that. So I know many of you are going through these things. We're not immune. And let's look at the scriptures and, 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 and examine this a little bit. Is God trustworthy? Number one. And number two, then, if he is, how do I trust him? Is God trustworthy? Now, sitting here, we might all agree and say yes. <laughs> um, I mean, it would be sort of blasphemy not to say yes. Um, so we assent mentally to this. But even now, or maybe in the past, you've gone through some experiences and you've said to yourself in one way or another uh, this statement, if God loves me, why did he allow this to happen? Have you ever said that? If God loves me, why did he allow this to happen? I've said it. I don't think there's one of us here, if we're honest with ourselves, in one form or another, has not at least formulated in our thinking that question. And basically that question is really a lack of trust in God, right? If God loves me, why did he allow this to happen? What we're saying is that obviously the opposite, if God loved me, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen. And therefore, if he allowed this to happen, obviously he does not love me. We wouldn't maybe think that, but in phrasing that question, that's really what we're, what we're saying. And I think there are th three essential truths about God that we must believe to deem him or to consider him, to have faith in him as being trustworthy. And the first relates to what we had in our responsive reading. We'll look at it in a little bit more detail, but... Number one, we have to believe, we have to admit, we have to assent or submit to the fact that God is in control. He is sovereign. He is the one who is in control. And number two, we have to, say, we have to admit <clears throat> that God exercises this sovereignty or his sovereignty for his own purposes and his glory. He exercises his sovereignty for his own purposes and glory. And number three, God exercises his sovereignty, not willy-nilly, but he exercises, exercises his sovereignty in perfect righteousness, love, and wisdom. That is, he exercises his sovereignty consistent with his character or with all of his attributes. And he is perfect. So he exercises his sovereignty perfectly. Now, we may not want to admit that, and certain things happen in our lives, but that's what the scriptures say. And we want to look at these things, and maybe to encourage our faith, 
and help us in these areas. Number one, let's look at them individually. God is sovereign. He is in control. You've probably heard of this book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It was written in 1981 by a rabbi, Harold Kushner. He studied the book of Job, and he concluded basically this, that God must either be good and not all-powerful, or he's all-powerful and not totally good. <clears throat> you look at the life of Job and you see many trials, and you know he, he becomes really the epitome of, of uh, what happens and how we are to react in trials and, and uh, bad situations. But when Rabbi Kushner looked at this, he concluded, he actually concluded on God's goodness. <laughs> he concluded that it's too difficult for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming innocent victims. That is, he claimed that God was good, but not all-powerful. Well, he presented an antithesis there, and I think if we look at the scripture, we're going we're to see that, good is, that God is, number one, all-powerful, but number two, he's also all-good. How do you reconcile? Kushner wasn't able to reconcile the two. If we're going to trust God, somehow, somehow we have to reconcile the two of those, that God is good and God is also all-powerful. How do you do that? Well, let's look at the scriptures. Turn, please, to Lamentations chapter 3, verses 37 through 39. If God is both all-powerful and all-good, why is there so much pain, suffering, and injustice in the world? That's a legitimate question. By the way, I don't know if we have an answer for that. <laughs> because it rests in the mind of God, actually. But Lamentations 3, 37 through 39. Who has spoken, and it came to pass, unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the, from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Some of your translations have calamity or ill or evil. When it talks about bad or evil or calamity here, it's not talking about sin. It's talking about bad things. Lamentations, of course, was written by Jeremiah, and he was lamenting the fact of what had happened to the nation of Israel and the bad, situ bad in quote, situation that they were in. They were totally uh, run over by the Assyrians and Babylonians, taken away in captivity. Uh, the land was desolate. Everything was torn down. And from the nations of Israel's perspective, it was bad news. Who controlled that? Who caused it? Well, we know from the scripture that God caused it. God caused the calamity to come. And it says right here that both good and bad come. Isaiah 45, 7. This might be difficult for us to understand or perceive. But it's a fact that we have to believe or we have to accept. I form light and create darkness. 
I make well-being and I create what? Calamity. I create, this is God speaking, by the way, directly through the prophet Isaiah. God controls both the good and the bad. Now we're going to see how sin affects that. I'm going to address that a little bit later uh, because we, we do need to address the concept of whether God sins. I'll say right now that he doesn't. We know that. But how does this all play into that? Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that later. But we see here from these verses that God creates and controls both the good and the bad. Job even said, shall I accept good from the hand of the bad, uh, uh, good from the hand of God, and not accept evil or calamity from the hand of God? The obvious answer is no. They both come from, from him. And we knew in Job's case, or we know in Job's case, that in fact that was true. Job 37 Now, God didn't directly cause Job's problems. He allowed Satan to do it. But in fact, he allowed Satan to do it. In fact, he could have prevented Satan from affecting Job. In fact, he did put a hedge around Job and preserved his life. But he did, he did allow the calamity to come with Job. Job 37, 6 through 13. I won't read the whole passage. But here's Job, uh, in Job it says, for, that for to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour, he seals up the hand of every man of all men whom he made, that all men whom he made might know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From the chamber of the, comes the whirlwind and the cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and, and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. We'll stop there. Jeremiah 14.22. God speaking here through Jeremiah says, are there among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are, not, are you not he, O Lord our God? We set our hope on you, for you what? Do all these things. God can cause the rain. God can cause the drought. He brings the rain and the drought, both the good and the bad. Read in Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before things, and in him all things hold together or consist. The Lord Jesus Christ, God through the Lord Jesus Christ, controls and holds the universe together. If he didn't do it, it would fall apart. God controls nature. He controls all the, all the things that happen around us, the good and the bad. So when we think of perhaps hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, tsunamis, who causes those things? It's God. We say, are those things good or bad? Well, we would say they're bad. 
But somehow God in his sovereignty allows them or causes them to happen. Turn to Exodus 4.11. Not only, not only doesn't he, does he control physical nature, he controls our physical bodies. Look at this, Exodus 4.11. This is when he's talking. At, I believe, yeah, it's a burning bush. He's talking to Moses. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Who does it? It is it not I, the Lord? Person's born blind. Who's behind that? He says it clearly. It's the Lord. It's I, the Lord. That's difficult for us to take, perhaps. But if we take the scriptures at face value, we see the Lord controls nature. Not only does he control nature, he controls our physical bodies. How does he do it? We don't totally understand how he does all this. He does it through some natural laws of physics and other things. He does it through genetics and things like that. But be assured that he is in control. If you were born with an affliction, if you were born with an affliction, it didn't happen to you randomly. God is in control of that. Not only does he, not only does he control the good and the bad and, and nature and our bodies, he controls the nations. Second Chronicles 20. <clears throat> Verse 6. O Lord, God of our fathers, are not you God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. We all know Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been, inst have been instituted by God. And then he goes on to say, if you resist the authorities, you resist God. God ordains rulers. He ordains nations. Not only what we would call good, if you could call the United States good, I mean benevolent, but Iran, where you have a, a dictator. God ordained that. Did he make a mistake? I don't think so. I think in the United States, Christians... Because we have a democracy and we have a say, which God has given us, we have too great a confidence in our political institutions. Maybe not so much lately, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> we have too great a confidence in them rather than in the government of God. If we spend more time praying, I don't say that we shouldn't exercise our freedom, but I think if we'd exercise more prayer, we'd be better off. Because it's God that controls this. It's not, it's not us. It's not our political institutions. God controls wars, Isaiah 10, 5 and 6. Ah, Syria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands, 
the staff in their hands is my fury against a godless nation I send him and against the people of my wrath I command him who Psalm 33 verses 16 and 17 the king is not saved by his great army a warrior is not delivered by his great strength the war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its might it cannot, it cannot rescue. Who controls this? The Lord controls this. So the Lord controls nations. God also controls people. Turn to Exodus 3. This is an interesting one. Exodus chapter 3, 21 and 22. Suppose you were a slave. Suppose you were a slave and uh, you wanted to be free. And uh, you went and petitioned your master to be free. And your master said no. But circumstances came around that eventually your master let you go. And not only did he let you go, but he gave you uh, half of his, uh, half of his uh, possessions. It would seem far-fetched. But look what happened to Israel. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you, will, you shall not go away empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor. Can you, can you think of this? You know, your neighbor hates you maybe. Go ask. And any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. How were they going to plunder the Egyptians? God was going to influence the mind, the thinking of the, of the people that they were serving as slaves to give them of their gold and their silver and their clothing so that when they went away, they would not go away. That, that's, you would say that is totally impossible. God can control people. Genesis 26. This is Abraham and Abimelech. Remember Abraham went down to Egypt, I think it was Egypt. He lied, Sarah was his sister and, and whatever, and the king was going to take her and, and, uh, for his wife. Then God said to him in a dream, this is to Abimelech, yes, I know that you have done this and in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. He influenced the king, and by the way, this guy probably wasn't even saved. He influenced him not to sin against God by taking Abraham's wife, who he thought was Abraham's sister. We're all familiar with Proverbs 21.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God controls people. He can influence them. He can, in one case, it was a dream. It, we don't know how he does it. We have some, in, some insight into it from the scriptures. But in reality, we don't know. We can't see behind the scenes what God is doing. And so God controls the good and the bad. He controls nature. He controls our body. 
controls nations, he sets up rulers, he sets up kingdoms, he controls wars, he can control people, their thinking, their, their, what they do. I think we have, to, we have to come to the conclusion that God controls everything. Now it's either by direct intervention or by permission because we have to realize in this world there's sin. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And God doesn't sin. But God can permit things. We see that in the life of, of Job. He didn't do it directly, but he permitted it. But he controls it. So nothing, nothing escapes his sovereign attention. No matter how insignificant. Look at this, Matthew 10. We know this from Matthew 10. What does he say about the sparrows? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? What's Jesus saying here? Jesus, Jesus is, well, he's, he's trying to make the, re, the relation to us. If, if a sparrow is worth nothing, how much more are we worth in God's sight? But the point that I want to make from this is that God knows what happens to the sparrows. They're so in, he knows what happens to the molecules of this the, the uh, I want to even say smaller than the molecule, the protons and electrons. He knows what happens in his universe. Nothing escapes his attention, no matter how insignificant it is. But another point we have to make is that God's control is often, and I'll, almost, I'll, I'll go on, on the limb and say almost always not obvious. I guarantee you that he has controlled your life and you haven't even known it. You might find out in eternity, you might not. But most of the time, the things that he does, we don't even know. Now, uh, I was going to talk about this a little bit later, but, but let's bring it up now. Um, we talk about the providence of God. And uh, by that, let me give you a definition. I have it here a little bit later. So I'll define it now. There are a number of ways of defining it, but providence is, is God's care and governance, the way he governs all of his creation at all times for his own glory. So it's the way he orchestrates everything in his creation for his own purposes and glory, the way he orchestrates it. So we often say, you know, driving down the road, somebody pulls out, you swerve, you just miss them, you go between two cars, up against, almost up against the side rail, you spin around and you come to a stop. That's God's providence. He was watching over me, right? Driving down the road, going through an intersection, wham, somebody runs a stop sign, T-boned you. Is that God's providence? Well, we don't often think of it that way, but in fact, that's just as much his providence as his controlling your escape in the previous situation. We don't think of it that way, but in fact it is. Now, why did he do one and not the other? We don't know. But what we have to accept, if we're going to trust God, what we have to accept that both of those fall under the providence of God. 
Let me get back to where I was. And a, a scriptural example of, of, of this actually is one of the best examples is the book of Esther. God's never mentioned in the book of Esther. But we know, if we look at it, that God is totally in control there. And one of the best examples of how he controls things is uh, the incident with, with uh, Mordecai, Haman, and the King Xerxes. Remember, Haman had a plot to kill Mordecai. And uh, actually, he was carrying it out. And on the next day, uh, Mordecai was to be, to be hung. But what happened the night, that night, or I think it was the night before or whatever. Xerxes, the king, just happened uh, not to be able to sleep. And not just happening to be able to sleep, he wanted to do something. So he just happened to call for the records to be read. And it just happened that when they read the records, they read of Haman, I mean of Mordecai, uh, foiling a plot to assassinate the king. It just happened that that had never been brought up before, and uh, the king decided, ah, I have to do something to honor Mordecai. So what he did, he called in Haman, you know the story, turned it totally around, Haman was hung on on the, on the gallows and not Mordecai. It just happened. Do you think that, that those events, those bizarre events, just happened? I don't think so. God was behind the scenes orchestrating the whole thing in order to save his people, the Jews. Even though maybe they didn't recognize it, even though uh, the name of God isn't mentioned in the book of Esther, you cannot read that book without seeing God's hand at work behind the scenes. So even though we don't understand or we can't see it, I think we have to admit that God's control is not, most often, most always, not evident. But we have, when it comes to trust, when it comes to trust and reliance, we have to trust that that is true. So number one, God is sovereign, he's in control. But number two, he doesn't exercise his sovereignty just to show he's the boss. He has a purpose and a plan. And God exercises his sovereignty for his own purposes and his glory. Here's the problem. Well, at least a problem in my life. My problem is that I think God, that I think that the world revolves around me. And when I face averse, adversity, I categorically call it bad. You have that problem? I'll give you a personal example. I, I was laid off my job a couple years ago. I don't, I wouldn't call it bad now. I didn't, I guess it really didn't bother me at the time uh, because the Lord had provided for me uh, through retirement and everything else to take care of me. But in fact, it was, it was, you know, I mean, nobody likes to be laid off. They're telling you, I don't need you anymore. 
And in my case, uh, there was just a few people that got laid off. So, you know, out of the whole, whole group, we don't need you and just a couple like you. So, you know, basically you're on the bottom of the heap. So, it, it, you know, it doesn't feel too good. But in the process of doing this, I, I found out, and I had talked about retirement and everything, but I found out that when they laid me off because of my age and seniority and salary and everything, they were able to keep two younger people who had families and needed a job. So let's look at this situation. From my perspective, it's a bad deal. From their perspective, it's a good deal. I don't know whether they were Christians or not, but suppose we're all Christians. Should I look at it as God is, is causing this to happen to me and that he's, he's not loving me? And then they look at it as, well, God loves me, you know? We, we tend to have a perspective, we tend to try to categorize God's love as to the way he, he treats us physically, perhaps. Is that the way that we should approach God? It was certainly bad for me, in quotes, but it was certainly very good for them. I think the perfect example of all of this, and I thought about this, the perfect example is in the, in the life death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to see God's sovereignty at work, if you look at the Lord Jesus, I think you'll see a perfect example of God's sovereignty at work. All the aspects of it, whether you talk about his foreknowledge, whether you talk about him using evil people, allowing sin, the whole nine yards, you see it all in, in, the, in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would we consider Jesus' death, his abandonment on the cross by the Father, his scourging, his abandonment by all the disciples, would we consider that something good? Well, if you look at the scriptures, it's certainly good for us. It's the only way we get to heaven. Let's look at it from Jesus' perspective when he was going through it. It says in, in Hebrews that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It wasn't a fun thing. As a matter of fact, in the garden, he prayed, let this pass from me, right? It was not good for him at the time, but it certainly was good for us. What point am I trying to make? My point is the way we define good. We define it in our own terms. What we need to look at is the way God defines it. What is God doing? God is doing something for his purposes. In the, in the death, burial, and resurrection, life of Christ, God had a, I mean, we could look at a number of verses, we don't have time. God had a purpose and a plan in this. That purpose involved much pain for the Lord Jesus Christ. It involved his father abandoning him, abandoning him on the cross. I don't think there's any way you can look at that and say that, was, that felt good to the Lord Jesus Christ. It did not. But it was for God's purposes and his for his glory. My point is that God exercised his sovereignty not on the, on the, on the basis of good or bad for, for, for whoever. It was on the, pay, purpose, on, the, on the basis of his purpose and his glory. And we don't think of it that way. 
We think of it as how it affects us. It's presumptuous at best and almost blasphemous to place our agenda of good, in quotes, above God's purposes and God's glory. Think of the man born blind in John chapter 9. What did Jesus say? Why was he born blind? Did he sin? No. It's so that, that, the, that the glory of God can be manifest. John 9, 1 through 3. Was it did that man born blind, I think he was like 38 years old, 38 years old, he's out there begging. Was that good for him? Was that good for his family? I don't think so. But it was for God's purpose and glory. We, uh, let's look at it this way, we can suffer loss and affliction so that God's purposes and ultimately his glory can be accomplished. And I think we have to realize that when things happen to us, whether we call them good or bad, that God is exercising his purpose, his sovereignty for his own purposes and glory. Think of what happened to James and Peter, both in the inner circle, both loved the Lord, the Lord loved them both. You get into Acts, there's persecution in the church. What happened to James? He was put to death. What happened to Peter? He was miraculously, God intervened, he was miraculously re released from prison. Is God accomplishing good in Peter and not in James? What happens if it were reversed? Why wasn't it reversed? We, don't, we really don't know. But what we can say, it was for God's purpose and for his glory. Would the family of, should the family of Peter been re, be rejoicing that he was released? Obviously, I mean, we all would. Something good happened. How about the family of James? How should they respond? Look, God saved Peter, but he didn't save James. Why does he love Peter more than he loves James? Does he? I think we all have to come to, to, to realization that the world doesn't revolve around us. And the faster we can come to that, the sooner and the easier it will be for us to trust God. Number three, God exercises his sovereignty in perfect righteousness, love, and wisdom. That is, it's consistent with his total character in all of his attributes. Um, we're running along here. Let me, let me just read these verses. You know them. Number one, God is light, which means there's no darkness, there's no unrighteousness whatsoever for him. So whatever he does, or whatever he even allows, is done in perfect righteousness. 1 John 4.8, we know that one. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. The character of God is love. Everything that he does is done in perfect love. Romans 11.33, let's turn to this one.
This comes in the context, obviously, of God's sovereignty with the nation of Israel, Romans 9, 10, and 11, and even his sovereignty with man. Paul can't, or he doesn't really answer the question, but he does say something here that's very profound, obviously. We don't know, but he does say, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Does God not know what he's doing? Is he not wise? Is he not all loving? Is he not all good? How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable, inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? We just have to admit that we don't understand. God is the one who is all wise and he never does anything out of the context of his total character, his total being. I'll read a few more verses here. You won't turn because time is fleeting. just want to read these. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. The Lord is good to all. How, How can we say that when bad things happen? But that's what it says here. His mercy is over all that he has made. When he acts, he does it in total goodness, in total righteousness, in total love. He puts all that together in his inscrutable wisdom and he acts and no one can question his actions. Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now how can God love? He loves because he gave us his son. If you look at his plan, it's, it's, uh, it's, like Paul said, it's inscrutable. He's got perfect love, which he expressed in the Lord Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins. Yet in his perfect righteousness, he has to do something about sin. So he did. And he has no pleasure when men re- refuse his, his sacrifice of his son. He has no pleasure in their death, but in his righteousness, he has to send them to an eternity in hell. So the entire plan is worked out in his total wisdom. We can see that a little bit, but we certainly can't see the whole picture. Isaiah 55, 8. You know this verse, I'll read it. We know it, but sometimes we don't assent to it. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The fact that we don't understand doesn't get us off the hook from trusting in God's sovereign control of the universe. Our problem is, when we look at God, he is, so, he is so far above us and so great, we tend to try to look at his attributes one by one. That is, we tend to concentrate maybe on his love, or some people concentrate on his righteousness. And when we do that, we sort of get 
uh, a distorted view of who God is. We can't, we're not, uh, our thinking is not deep enough to be able to comprehend all of these characteristics, all of these attributes at once. If you think about this, again, I'll go back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Does God love his son? Did you answer yes or no? Of course he loves his son. Hmm. So why would he have his son be abandoned by the apostles, be scourged, be spit on, be nailed to a cross, hang on that cross, and then abandon him when he was fully able to take him off of that cross and exalt him as his son. Why? Listen, you have, most of you have sons and daughters. Would you ever do any of that to your sons and daughters in the name of love? Is, are you more loving than God? Does God love his son? Certainly he loves his son. Can we understand why he did what he did? Well, you have to put the concept of loving his son with, with everything, all of his other attributes. I mean, we can't comprehend it. It's, it's, it's impossible to even try. But the point is that he loved his son, and yet, because of his purposes and glory and all of his other attributes, he had to allow his son to go through that. And so, you know, our car breaks down. God doesn't love me. I have this affliction. God must not love me. I lost my job. God must not love me. Well, when you go through what the Lord Jesus Christ went through, you can say, God doesn't love me. Huh? I don't think so. God loved his son. He loves you. He says so in the scriptures. Let me just say this. I'm not going to get done. I can see it. Let's, let, let's put it this way. God doesn't owe us or anyone an explanation for what he does. God does say that he loves us. As a matter of fact, he cares for you when you hurt. He may have to put you through hurt because of his purposes. But he cares for you. As a believer, he cares for you in your hurt. We can, we can look at a number of verses. We just don't have the time. But you, he is allowing you to hurt for his purpose and for your good. We know that from Romans 8.28. We can turn there for a second. You know, they know the verse. We know that for those who love God, all things what work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And then he goes on. We might have time to get to it. And he, he, he says there, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Nobody. Nothing. Not, not only nobody, nothing can. So we know that God cares for us. When you look at the Psalms, you see when David was hurting, how he called out to the Lord. He will comfort you in your hurt. You may not know why you're going through it, but he will comfort you in your hurt if you'll call out to him, if you will trust him. And that's where this trust comes in. We have to 
we have to come to the place where we submit to God's total sovereignty over all of his creation, especially over our lives. And we need to bow before him and simply trust him. If we'll do that and cry out to him, he'll care for us. He might not remove the infirmity. He might not remove the trial. But that's not the point. The point is his relationship with you. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? We have no claim on God's love, but he freely gives it to us. I mean, when we consider how sinful we are and how much we turn away from him and how much we maybe accuse him or, you know, say, well, why do you, if you did, if, if this happened, why do you love me? I mean, it, it's all the things some children sometimes do. You know, you, know, my, your, you discipline your child. You don't love me anymore. Are we any different to God sometimes? Certainly he loves us. He loves Israel. Hosea 11, 1 through 9. We don't have time. We can turn there. God talks about how much he loves the nation of Israel. And he says at the end of that passage, will I ever forsake them? No, I am God. I'll never forsake my people Israel. Let me ask you this. Which nation on earth has had the most trial and tribulation since the beginning of time? than the nation of Israel. Have things always gone, quote, good for them? No. Well, it's because of their sin. That's true. But God knows all that in his foreknowledge, and he, he was a, he able, he's able to deal with it. But the point is that just because they go through a lot of trial and tribulation does not mean that, they, that he does not love them. If you look at his son, you look at the nation of Israel, if you look at your own personal life, you must come to the conclusion that no matter what I'm going through, God still loves me and he cares for me. I may not know why this is happening, but I can count, I can rest, I can trust in that fact. Just a few quick points that I, I want to make. We might pick it up tonight because I want to talk about a little bit how we trust and obey God. We'll just, we'll just continue tonight. Some obvious questions. I think you know the answers, but we want to go over them quickly. Does God in any way cause, direct, or motivate anyone to sin? We read 1 John 1, 5, God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. Uh, James 1, 13, let's see if I can bring it up here. That's the one, that's the passage that says that no one say he when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with sin, and he himself tempts no one. God does not tempt anyone to sin. Now, does God allow sin? You have to even go back. This is, this is why uh, when you consider the sovereignty of God, you also have to consider the foreknowledge of God. Did God in any way cause Satan to exalt himself so that he would sin? You have to say from James that there is no way. God, uh, Satan, of his own will, not motivated by anything that God did, sinned on his own. If you go back to Adam and Eve in the garden, they were perfect. They did not have a sin nature. 
did God in any way, now God allowed Satan to tempt them, that wasn't, a, he did allow that, but God, did God in any way directly influence or motivate Adam and Eve to sin? No, they did it of their own free will. God knew that they would do it because he is omniscient, but God in no way caused them to do it. God permits sin, but God does not cause sin. And so, in fact, God allows sin to happen, and he uses it for his own purposes and glory. I mean, we could probably spend three or four messages on that, but I think it needs to be said. Proverbs 21.1, we read that God takes the ruler's heart and he directs it wherever he wills. Some people would say, on the basis of that, they assume that God causes or influences everything that the ruler does. And by extension, obviously, he's using that, that there to show that if God controls the rulers, he controls everybody, that, that God influences or controls everything that everybody, everybody does. That would, in effect, take away our, our, our ability to make decisions. Some, as a matter of fact, some theologians come to that position. I don't think it's true. I, I think if you look at scriptures, you have, if you look at them at face value, you have to, you have to take them at face value, that we are responsible for our own actions. God certainly can influence, and he does influence. He did it, with, he did it in Egypt. He did it with Xerxes. He did it uh, in a, a number of other cases. Are we to assume because he did it there that he always does it? No, that extension doesn't, doesn't apply. Certainly we know it doesn't apply to sinful actions. He allows them, he permits them, but he doesn't cause them. But he doesn't cause good actions all the time either. And you might say, well, that, you know, man is always a sinner. He, he never does good. Well, he never does good so that we would get to heaven. But in terms of right and wrong, you have unbelievers who I believe of their own free volition choose to do what's right rather than wrong. That doesn't make them acceptable in God's sight. But they have a decision to make. Are they going to do what? Are they going to cheat and lie? Or are they going to do what's right? A lot of people, even unbelievers, will do what's right. Did God cause them to do that? I don't believe in every case he does. He can. He can motivate them. But that doesn't mean that he always does. So that brings us to the last point. Do people really have a free will? I.e., the perfect freedom to make moral choices apart from God's direct influence or control. That is, are we programmed like a puppet? And I, if you look at scripture, there's never any sug suggestion in scripture that we are puppets moved by divine strings. How does God do this? I don't know. But he allows us to exercise our free will under certain boundaries so that in his providence he works everything out to accomplish his own purposes and goals for his own glory. So he doesn't control everything we do, but he does use everything. He does permit it, because he could change it if he desired to change it. And I think there are a couple arguments for this, but one of them is that we're held accountable. You can't be held accountable for something that you don't do. We have a responsibility. First, 2 Corinthians 5.10 relates to believers. We'll all stand, what, before the judgment seat of Christ. Each way may receive what is due, what he has done in the body, 
whether good or bad. And there's no way I think that you can say that God or Satan caused me to do this. You make your own decisions. So we can't use the sovereignty of God as an excuse for our own failures, our own sin, or even act of pa acting passively. When we know, and this gets into our obedience, when we know what the scriptures say and we have a choice to make, and we don't act, we act passively, we can't use God's sovereignty as an excuse that we didn't act. We're going to give an account for that, 2 Corinthians 5.10. So it's time to close. Is, the, is what we see, or let me put it this way, is God the God of the universe? Or is the God of universe chance? Do things happen by chance? I read a, a quote, um, I think it puts it very well. We admit, this is Margaret Clarkson said, we admit that we are often unable to reconcile God's sovereignty and goodness in the face of widespread tragedy or personal adversity. This is where the trust comes in. But we believe that although we do not understand God's ways, he is sovereignly at work in all of our circumstances. And I'll go beyond that to say not in our circumstances, but in all of the circumstances that happen in the world. He controls everything. He controls them according to his sovereign purpose, exercising all of his attributes in perfect wisdom, perfect righteousness, and perfect love to accomplish his purpose and his glory. The question is, when it happens in our life, are we willing to trust him? And we'll pick it up there tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time and for the reminder of these things. We, we know, Lord, that you're in control. I mean, we assent to that. I trust that everyone here does. But when it happens to us, we have to admit, Lord, that we question your control, your love, and maybe many other things in your character. We pray that you forgive us of that, Lord, and help us, no matter what happens in our lives, to be willing to trust you. We know it's difficult to do, but we pray that you'd help us to do it in Jesus' name. Amen.